0: Welcome to the official As Began podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Noisley.
1: Hello, everybody. Today, Professor Neil Dawan of King's College London is with us, and I look forward to a real treat here. Professor Dawan has, in his 30 years career as a pediatric hepatologist in the United States and most recently at King's, Mm -hmm. spent some of his immense energy, I won't say the most part of it, but a great deal of it on trying to make the prospects for children with acute liver failure different from the misery that they were when he entered the field. In Vienna in 2023 at the Espagan conference, he presented his experience over those 30 years and how his perspective, and with it the perspective of children and their families affected by acute liver failure has shifted. I hope that he will share with us today what he found when he entered pediatric hepatology and what has changed and what the prospects for the future now are. Anil, lovely to have you here.
0: Thank you, Alex, for hosting me, as always acute liver failure i said in is different in children than adults but unfortunately or incidentally the the large body of data and the, the recommendations that come that come from the adult world that starts with the definition of acute liver failure which is adult definition which requires encephalopathy within 6 to 8 weeks of onset of jaundice That is a problem in pediatric age group because you don't get sometimes that duration of illness and encephalopathy is only present in half of the children. So that's the definition is a problem. We will come to that later on. Okay. When we entered, when I started my medical school in the 80s, the publication came from King's College Hospital in 1981 by late Professor Alex Mowat, the first publication in the Western world on the subject, reporting 82% Mortality.
1: Get out 82%? That's correct.
0: That is really black. In archives of disease of childhood, 1981, 82% mortality and 90% plus, there was no cause identified. Well,
1: that's um, a lot to be improved on and a lot to be found out.
0: So, in a way, when there's a lot to be improved, then improvements can come fast. Oh, yeah. So we have come to that stage now. So what has happened is, over the years, if we speak today, the survivals, not the mortality, survivals are in
1: 90%. I think that as a discipline,
0: pediatric, hepatic, pediatric hepatology can be dang proud. Yeah. Uh, very well so. And me, myself, and my colleagues are all very proud of it, but I don't think the job is done yet.
1: Oh, what's, well,
0: since they're not all living, of course it's That's not correct, done. yes. But where are the points that you think these be okay? So you could ask me, Alex, so what changed, Professor Dewan? What changed, Professor what Dewan? What changed? What changed is that we had more dedicated liver centers over the time. We had a multidisciplinary approach. Transplantation came on as a therapy in 1980s, became more easily, readily available in the Western world in early 90s, and to the rest of the world in 2000-something. So, in other words, transplantation is a modality of treatment that has made a real difference to the outcome. Transplantation is the only, only, only proven treatment for acute liver failure. The rest all is on the fringes. We will talk about it. Now, so transplantation is a treatment. It works, so why bother? So what is your problem then? with changing the liver.
1: With that, you're almost in the stage of biliary atresia, where who needs to understand why it happens? It's a surgical
0: problem. So it needs to ha- we need to understand why it happens because of the following reasons. If you, the outcome of acute liver failure, incidentally, depends on what caused it. Sure. Okay? As you know, if you have a paracetamol overdose, incidentally, then a vast majority will survive with anastalcysteine. Mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. if a viral hepatitis a as still a problem in our eastern part of the world and south america vast majority will survive right or vaccinated and prevented right you have conditions that children are born with some in in more narrows a metabolism that you can't predict okay but timely diagnosis can intervene and change galactosemia for that matter tyrosinemia for that matter their outcome could change. So diagnosis is extremely, extremely important. So what has changed? We didn't have molecular genetics. We didn't have hist- specialized histopathological techniques. We didn't have all those things. So Alex Mogut's paper described vast majority as indeterminate or unknown etiology. right, okay. So that is one thing that we have made a progress, and the time to be there is still, I think, more work to be done on that.
1: I'm going to interject here. You gave us improved survival and mortality figures, but what about the percentage of cases that now are
0: undiagnosed? Yes, so that is a very good question you ask. If you look at the data, data is polluted at some places. I call it data pollution. Mm-hmm. Somebody publishes a paper, 74% of their patients have no diagnosis in the today's world in etiology. That's not right. They're not looking hard That's enough. pollution. Yeah. That's a data pollution. Okay. So it depends. So by and large, a reasonable workup will get you 50%. Okay. Reasonable workup means the known cause is very quickly done. If you work hard, okay, working hard means... Working with a pathologist, you're a geneticist, you're a biochemist, okay, and waiting years and years, then you can drop it to 31%. That's King's College data. King's College data, to the four, okay. Yeah. So 31% indeterminate. Uh-huh. But 31% is still a big number. Yeah. Okay. And opportunity came during, after the isolation was lifted, uh, after COVID, mm-hmm. And we had a sudden surge of children with acute liver failure.
1: Right, right. So there was an
0: opportunity for us to see and do something different. So what was before and what was after? So what happened is, previously we used to see indeterminate five to seven children per year requiring transplantation at King's. And that was pretty static. COVID comes, everybody shuts down, nothing much happens. Covid restrictions lifted, you suddenly get a number of patients showing up, thick and fast. Incidentally, UK Health Protection Agency audits or does a surveillance on adenoviral infections in children. Coincidentally. Coincidentally, that data is there. So every week, before that, every month, we get about 100 to 200 cases. That's that's the standard. During COVID, 2021, it went up to 30 to 50. When that restriction lifted, it went up to 400.
1: Why would it go up during COVID?
0: It I didn't go up during, it went run. down. It, oh, I'm sorry, sorry, I misunderstood. It went to 30, 30 to 50 cases per oh, month versus 200. Okay.
1: After everybody's COVID, wearing masks,
0: nobody's... Staying home, no? and children are not mm-hmm, going to take care, mm-hmm. nursery, not mixing with each other. I think adenovirus is a surrogate marker for other viral infections.
1: A surrogate marker and not the not one responsible the, not, for the liver failure. It is not the culprit. But it happens at the same time and you happen to isolate it. And, well, you beat, you take the stick and beat the dog that's nearest to you, no matter who's barking.
0: That's correct. So that dog was bitten, mm-hmm. uh, including my wife, who is an infectious disease person, and she started giving sediphobia to these children. Because adenovirus was positive everywhere, right? So we reported the experience in Lancet, and we said safely can be given. Whether it works or not, we don't know, <laughs> but it can <laughs> be given. Excuse me. So after that, so what? Why did I bring in COVID? Because during COVID, healthcare industry was tested for its resilience, for its capacity, for its thinking. So whole of the UK healthcare health prevention industry was working on COVID. A week before these patients started coming, they were winding down that unit. And when these patients came, the government said, guys, don't wind it down, stay alive. So that unit took on the project. I never thought I'd be congratulating the British government, but here I am. No, you have to. This is one thing they did well. Okay, Because if you remember, CDC has looked at it quite Quite hard, mm-hmm. Alabama epidemic out, out, outbreak that came. So didn't find anything. Now this combination, what it did is, we got proteomics, genomics, metabolomics, and put everything. And then they have come out with the AAV, in present in about ninety percent of these children. Right, AV two. Mm-hmm. Okay, the AV two is not a pathogenic virus either. But none other than it was described. So before that, when I was contacted by WHO, we had a discussion with them and we had a discussion with the local groups and I wrote an editorial on Lancet saying that it looks like an immune dysregulation. is a certain group of children who show an abnormal response to the common viruses and the super antigen hypothesis and they develop an immune related dysfunction of the liver and some of them go into so-called liver failure. So that was the theory we proposed in Lancet in May, 2022.
1: Has that been borne out?
0: It's published, yeah. So it's no, worn no, no, out no. in a born out. Born yes, out. it's worn out in a way that if you say aab two, which is a non-pathogenic virus, but the ab two proteins are not found in the cells of the liver cells. So, right. but there is an immune response there. You find the lymphocytic rich material there. So there is a something. Okay, there there is a some smoke there. Okay. Now, so why I'm telling you this story is that if the resources are put in and the manpower or human resources there, then things can move faster. So what we come out with this hypothesis was, our, so what we did is we looked at adenovirus related acute viral hepat, acute liver failure in the last five years before a pandemic or COVID pandemic. And we found it hasn't changed. So our paper in Journal of Hepatology said this is not a new disease because the hype was created that's a new disease that's causing liver failure in children. So we put that to bed. Okay, it's not a new disease. It's a combination of individual factor and a group in, uh, I think it's a group in US, CDC group, who have found HLA association. Okay. So there is an HLA. A susceptibility. Separate. So there is a susceptible population during a combination of multiple viral infections. We think it's a super antigen which has a molecular mimicry to the liver cells and you get an immune response and you get a liver dysfunction. And
1: all this is sweeping through a population newly exposed to a host of viruses because of the lifting of COVID restrictions. That, as an anecdote for how the treatment, the understanding and the treatment of liver failure, well, let's just, uh, let me take that back. That's an anecdote that it tells us how far the understanding of liver failure has come. But you've been working on the treatment of liver yes. failure short of transplantation as well, That's and correct. I want to hear from you about that.
0: Yes, so let's go back to transplant. Give the devil its respected due. Liver transplantation is the effective treatment. Mm -hmm. Okay, but you know and I know and some other people know that liver transplantation is a disease It substitutes a disease you can live with from one that you die for. Thank you. Okay Now here comes history again. You know story of Prometheus For sure. Okay, Prometheus didn't die may have a painful death maybe for a long time, but if the Prometheus theory was right, and if it's a one-time liver insult, as we say in acute liver failure, and if you look after that person's support during that time, the liver will regenerate. Should do. Okay. What can we do in the 20th century to prove that concept of Prometheus? I know you're going to tell us. Yes. So you, I happen to be blessed with two wonderful colleagues, Alex, Alex Nicely. Oh, I'm out of here. <laughs> but Professor Nigel Heaton and Professor Muhammad Rella. Hats off, absolutely. So what they continued to practice was replace right or the left lobe of the native liver with the right or left lobe of the donor liver, creating a hybrid liver gotcha. called auxiliary liver transplantation gotcha. with an idea that the native liver will regenerate with time while the support transplanted liver gives the support. Theoretical concept has done before, not successfully, but these two guys took it to the next level. Only last month, no, two weeks back, we had a presentation at IRTS annual meeting which shows this should be the gold standard of treatment. For everybody with acute liver failure, they should be offered this treatment because 70% will go off immunosuppression. Okay, for them transplant didn't happen. But if you look at the outcomes of children and both adults who have auxiliary transplant versus whole liver replacement, the survival is far superior in auxiliary transplant group. What are the numbers? So, numbers are reaching more than 100. And the percentages? Adults? Adults are, uh, so half and half. So, we have done 49 children and there are about 57 adults. How many have you lost in those two groups? Lost means? To death. Mortality is less than 5%. That is wonderful. Yeah. So that's the number. So there we are. So now your question is, Anil, where do you come into picture? Now, I'm not a surgeon. Okay. So my role was, can we do without transplantation?
1: Well, I'm going to challenge that because you're transplanting, you're not transplanting organs, if I understand right. Yes. You're transplanting cells.
0: Cells. So, but that's what I meant. So without opening somebody's belly and doing a big operation, can we do something short of that? Uh So that's where the concept of hepatocyte transplantation came. And the reason is that you can get away with a small volume of cells plus the regenerative forces that determine the outcome of a patient. We lose that when we start doing this big dialysis and big everything because you are taking up all the regenerative molecules also. True. Okay. So we come up with the idea. And these things, good ideas also always happen on a cafe. They don't happen in a lab. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So in a cafe in a Milan, when I was with my lab, a few people, and I said, listen, we need to do something, put these cells into this alginate bead and put it into the belly because we only need four to six weeks of function and support to the liver, unlike diabetes people who were struggling to do it for life. We came back from Milan and my very able and very talented scientist delivered it in the next few weeks, a prototype in a petri dish, and then we were supported by the government. We had a support from the National NHS, support from the grant-giving bodies, and we now had a clinical program of human hepatocyte programs in allerginate beads, uh, with 50% survival in children who were candidates for liver transplantation. I'm going to summarize that again.
1: With intravenous, Intrahepatic. Not intravenous. Just wait just a moment. Just a moment. With intravenous or intrahepatic transplantation of donor hepatocytes, you run into a longer support situation than is the case with what you're doing now, which is encapsulating these hepatocytes in a neutral matrix and infusing them into the peritoneal cavity where they can support metabolic functions until the liver, the native liver, that is, gets back on its feet. And this is now a functionally operative program with the option, if it should not work, of moving to liver transplantation. That's correct. Well, that's a lot to have accomplished in 30 years, big guy.
0: (laughs) That's very kind of you, but I think there are more things to do because we still rely on cells as human donors. So we are working on improving the cell quality with mesenchymal stromal cells. Yes, We have developed a patented new alginate, which mm-hmm. has a better outcome. And we are working very closely with some groups who are developing cells from either embryonal cells or iPS-derived hepatocytes.
1: Can I give a brief shout-out here to Celine Philippi?
0: Celine, so I was going to come to that. Yes, so Raghai Mitri, Celine Filippi, and I'm blessed with my colleagues in the lab. Yes.
1: Thank you so much. We are, I could listen for a long time to these accounts. You're very kind. But, but we have time constraints. And all I can hope is that maybe at uh, some future date, you'll be able to enlarge on what progress you've made in the time between this recording and our next
0: one. We'll be delighted. (laughs) Lovely. Thank you, Alex.
1: Um, We we usually end these things with uh, something that reminds the person being interviewed of where he or she came from, something of his or her homeland to share with ESPEGAN, which is, after all, an international organization. It underlines how important it is for people to cooperate and to collaborate across national borders. Do you have a song chosen for us?
0: Yes, Salma has chosen a song for me, and it's a wonderful song. And it's a Chudia, Kangana. What does that mean? Put that into English, so those two this, words. So this dame wanted to impress her boyfriend, and she's saying the language that's coming from her bangles Aha. is most impressing.
1: Well, John Lennon once said to the people in the posh, circles at the Royal Opera House, you don't have to applaud, just rattle your (laughs) jewellery. So
0: we'll rattle her (laughs) jewellery. listen to this song in full length please check out our SBGAN playlist
1: Neil, that was a lovely song. I didn't understand a word of it aside from um, the sound of the bangles, but thank you
0: You're very kind Alex, and if you listen it again and again you will understand the words (laughs)